Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. Good morning, and we are so delighted to be on Voice America Radio, which allows us to talk about a lot of things that we don't get to talk about or nobody talks about on mainstream media because look at the advertisers, the very institutions and companies that are causing the problems and the unnecessary infliction of suffering on animals. I am so honored to be here today with Mike Ryan, who is the Director of Government Relations and Policy for the New England Anti-Vivisection Society. And Mike, you're my hero. You have stopped uh, in coordination with various other uh, animal lovers, institutions, uh, some of the cruelest experiments on animals that I have ever heard about, uh, particularly the torture of baby monkeys. If you could just tell us that story, because I think of all the stories that show how stupid, how mindless, how nonsensical uh, animal experimentation in general and primate experimentation in particular is, the story of the baby monkey experiments that you stopped, uh, and I believe you were with PETA at the time, uh, it it just crystallized for me how morally bankrupt animal testing is. Tell us that story. Thanks. Uh, And it's great to be on your show. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, The first thing I want to clarify is it's certainly nothing I can take credit for. uh, Something I did myself. I was a consultant on this project. Uh, Other organizations were involved and other individuals at a much greater level than me. Uh, It was fun to play a participating role in it. But uh, essentially, uh, this is the story of, of child abuse. Um, The uh, experiments involved taking uh, infant primates, um, crab-eating macaques specifically, and uh, so very small primates, and intentionally putting them in the greatest amount of despair possible, uh, allowing there to be no mother figure, uh, introducing a mother figure like a cloth fake uh, primate that would shock or otherwise hurt uh, the baby, and then uh, after to discover how did this traumatize the infant and uh, how did it maybe change its brain chemistry after the uh, baby was euthanized? Uh, these experiments uh, yielded precious little in terms of any data that anyone relied on in the future. Mostly these, were, these primates were dying to be a footnote in someone's study. And they went on for over 30 years after Congress uh, asked for hard answers of the National Institutes of Health as to why this continued. Um, the National Institutes of Health announced an end uh, to that funding, and that was in December of 2015. It was just a few days after Congress asked the NIH, National Institutes of Health, for answers about this uh, that NIH threw in the towel. It was a real victory. The problem is that so many experiments just as cruel as these are continuing, and that's why the New England Anti-Vivisection Society uh, and others are working to end uh, other kinds of primate experiments, which are at an all-time high in this country, unfortunately. Yes, and if you ever see me looking down, it's because I am sharing this video. I urge everyone to please share this video because these poor animals cannot speak for themselves. They have no voice, they're powerless, they have no names. They are just like our dogs and cats and I always bring our little mascot, little Rico on 
uh, to remind people that if you love animals, don't just love the animals in your immediate vicinity, love all the animals, love all the animals, the nameless uh, animals that are stuck in laboratories that have only a number that are experiencing utter misery and they have no voice except for organizations like the New England Anti-Vivisection Society. And I just want to say, I was a reporter at the time that that story broke. And I remember seeing the baby monkey trying to wake up the sedated mommy. And at some points, the scientists laughed. And of all the things that just ripped me to my core and made me embarrassed to be a human being. It was their laughter at the misery of this innocent, innocent monkey. Now, I want to ask you a question. And that was what you said. Three decades they were torturing these animals. Why on earth would the National Institutes of Health that's supposed to be using taxpayer dollars, remember people, you and I are paying for this. Every time we write a check to Uncle Sam, we are paying for this barbarism, this medieval torture, and it is torture. Um, why would they, and, and, and I'll say one other thing, one of the reasons that I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, like that it stopped right away and members of Congress started asking what, what the heck is this, is because a Freedom of Information Act request actually obtained the video of these experiments, and that once people saw the experiments, they couldn't deny, they couldn't pretend why on earth would the National Institutes of Health want to do this garbage if it's clearly not getting anybody anywhere, it's torture, and it's junk science? Why do they hang on to this junk science, Mike? Bad habits die hard. And often in the case of uh, research funded by the National Institutes of Health, uh, it's uh, an incentive for experimenters often to use animals because they can extend a project into multiple years. Um, this is often a jobs program for scientists uh, that once they can start the experiment, even if the results coming in, the, the data is not that compelling, it's a way to keep grant money flowing and you can get multiple years of funding. Um, it's, it's not that difficult to get an experiment started uh, and we've found that it's all too often, as you point out, experiments continue uh, simply out of habit and funding will be given year after year. Another example of that is uh, to take cats, for example, where the USDA, uh, using taxpayer dollars uh, in Maryland, is every year giving up to 100 cats, kittens often, uh, food poisoning, just so they, they can get a stool sample. They're trying to study something called toxoplasmosis, with, which most cats have. It's fairly innocuous. Um, and uh, many Americans have been exposed to this, and there's no problem. But USDA, they found, very, they found nothing that I'm aware of in terms of uh, actual ways to defeat food poisoning. But every year they're killing 100 kittens. Uh, simply, these cats absolutely could be adopted out in addition, uh, but they're killing them. So you have 30 years of these cats being obtained, uh, given, uh, made sick, and then killed. Um, and there's no evidence that this research has been beneficial at all. Congress has weighed in on that as well. And the big spending bill that's tied up right now in a uh, largely over a border wall funding, that spending bill will contain language that we're very excited about telling USDA to look to adopt out these kittens. But that's just another example of the problem you're identifying, where it's scientists will get funding to do something with animals and multiple years will go by, the same experiment is repeated, and no one 
at, at the NIH stops to say, maybe this isn't a road we need to continue to go down. The autopilot funding is a big problem. So follow the money. These follow people the money. are getting rich. How many animals are used in experimentation today in the United States? It's hard to say, but we think it's about 100 million animals in the United States right now. Uh, we base that on the fact that 98% of the animals that are used in medical experiments are not technically animals under the Animal Welfare Act, if you can believe it. So there we're talking about um, mice, rats, frogs. Uh, they're not actually animals. When we look at what is disclosed and we see that number, uh, then, and we know that 98% of them are not, we can then extrapolate to say it's about 100 million animals per year. Well, I'm getting some comments here. We're simulcasting on Facebook. And uh, Malfalda says the breeding of animals for laboratories is big business. That's, that's a huge issue because it's not just the animals being tortured. It's this whole industry of breeding laboratory animals uh, that is a big business. I fought it in Puerto Rico uh, with PETA when they tried to open a laboratory animal breeding facility in a small town in Puerto Rico without telling anybody. Uh, the, the battle went all the way up to the Puerto Rican Supreme Court. It never got to open. Then it pops up again in Hendry County, Florida. Um, and uh, sad to say that Hendry County, Florida has uh, fewer qualms uh, than Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico took a higher moral stance than Hendry County, Florida. And even despite an undercover PETA investigation that showed that in some of the facilities there, there were horrific things going on. Yeah, you're absolutely right that it's a big business. Uh, Massachusetts is um, one of the, there are three states in the United States that have uh, the most primates that are suffering in experiments. Um, and Massachusetts is in the lead there simply because there is a large corporation in Massachusetts uh, that is uh, the, the largest breeder of primates for medical research. Um, uh, that, that's, a, that's a big part of the problem is the domestic breeding. Another aspect in terms of how uh, experimenters get their hands on primates that they want to use is they import them. Um, uh, most primates today are, they are used in experiments, they're imported. And most of the time it's from China. Um, and uh, the state of play on that is there's actually a pretty interesting uh, complaint that's been filed with the Department of Transportation. It's essentially, this is essentially what's going on. Most airlines as of today have said that they will no longer ship primates for medical experiments. The only holdout is Air France. A group in the U.S. representing experimenters has filed a complaint with the Department of Transportation alleging that the airline's refusal to jeopardize the health and safety of their own passengers by putting uh, these primates on the planes uh, in cargo, um, that that constitutes a form of discrimination. We think that's incoherent. Our hope is that the Department of Transportation will dismiss this complaint uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, in the last month or so, 26,000 Americans have weighed in with the Department of Transportation making comments. Uh, the majority of them uh, back our position, saying uh, that the airlines should have a right to refuse this sort of work, that it has no place uh, in a decent society. You shouldn't be taking primates and shipping them off to live in windowless basement cages uh, to be experimented on and then killed. Uh, our hope is that this problem will be resolved and that the airlines, uh, that Air France will join uh, the other airlines in refusing to be a part of this. If we can do that, that'll make a big step forward in toward reducing the number of primates that suffer this fate. Now, Air France has a partnership, right? With, uh, is it, well, I don't want to get into it, but there's an American airline that they have a par partnership with, right? I believe so. 
Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. What can consumers do? What can consumers do to stop this horror? I was very involved. A couple of things I want to say. I went to Israel when Israel stopped exporting wild monkeys, wild caught monkeys for animal experimentation. And I actually was with Addie Gill who, uh, stop the last 1,250 monkeys from being shipped out to be experimented on. And he actually uh, paid for their care. He spent a lot of money to try to get them to a sanctuary within Israel. Israel has made a change, uh, not exporting wild-caught monkeys for experimentation. Is the United States, I know Europe has taken a lot of efforts to it, to a certain degree, limit experimentation. It's such a big, it's such a big problem. It's hard to get a handle on it. It's hard to get a handle on where's their progress and where are we going backwards. But is the United States backward, in your opinion, in terms of coming up with alternatives to animal testing? We know that we are in the 21st century. We have human cell tests. We have DNA, we have molecular and submolecular level sophistication, and yet they're still poisoning dogs and monkeys and uh, all sorts of other animals, including rats who have just as many feelings as a dog or a cat, even though they're small. And um, they're, you know, writing down, well, the, the animal's tail twitched when it was poisoned. It's medieval. It's quite obvious that it's medieval because if we have human cells, we're humans. We're trying to test whether a product is going to hurt humans. Using a human cell and seeing the reaction on a human cell is obviously, it just makes more sense from even a layman's perspective. Why is it that this, that I just can't wrap my mind around. I understand that these scientists, so-called scientists want to make money and they want to live in McMansions and they want to be, they want to have prestigious titles but um, are they just sociopaths? I mean, why can't they get with the times? I think, um, I think there's a lot of experimenters that are engaged in this work that simply don't want to be. Uh, a, a great example of that is a wonderful man named John Gluck. Um, he's a professor at uh, University of New Mexico. Uh, he's one of uh, the advisors to the New England Anti-Vivisection Society. He's a former primate experimenter himself, and he wrote a really compelling book a few years ago uh, called uh, Voracious Science and Vulnerable Animals. And in there, he details how his, he came to view the work that he was doing as, um, I don't know if he would use the word immoral, but um, he certainly, uh, his thinking evolved tremendously. And in my conversations with him, um, it leads me to believe that he's not alone in wanting to be out of this business. So I think there's some of the experimenters are sort of trapped and they genuinely just don't know how to get out of this uh, to some degree. And there are some that uh, honestly see no problem with what they're doing. They think they're in the right. Um, and they will resist any efforts to try and bring transparency to their work, even though we know that 70% of Americans outright oppose what they're doing to these animals. As to your question about the alternatives, um, it's a mixed bag of news on the development of alternatives to animal tests. In some ways, there have been some great victories. The development of AZT, which is a drug used in uh, to treat HIV, that was developed using non-animal methods. Um, so that was a real victory for alternatives. And there have been, thanks to Congress, asking or funding the development of alternatives. There are more and more. One problem we have is that too often experimenters, when they're looking at a question they're going to ask, their first reaction is to, is to start down the road of an animal test. 
although they're obligated to look at what alternatives could exist that don't require them to use animals, uh, we believe that they're not spending enough time looking at the existing alternatives tool set. In addition, we'd like to see more funding for the development of these alternatives. Uh, the good, there's good news there as well. The same spending bill that I referenced earlier uh, that's going to have some good news about uh, adoption of cats abused in medical experiments, that same bill contains a big increase in funding uh, for the development of alternatives to animal tests. So uh, even though there's evidence that they're not being used enough, there's some really good news coming about the field of alternatives growing. And our hope is that uh, there'll be an increased reliance on them so that these numbers of animals that are suffering in medical experiments can come down. Now, we were very thrilled to, and I worked very hard with social compassion legislation and uh, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine to pass the Cruelty-Free Cosmetics Act here in California, which says that um, you cannot sell, it's being phased in, but I believe by 2020, you cannot sell any beauty products, cosmetics or shampoos that have been tested on animals. There is a loophole, and I know I work closely with the people who were fighting for this bill, they fought tooth and nail to keep the loophole out, but it was going to die if it didn't get this loophole. Um, it wasn't going to be signed into law. And uh, so the loophole is if a, if there's a government agency that requires it, and, and that's basically the call the China loophole because China requires experimentation on uh, animals for cosmetics, etc. Now, uh, one of the great uh, examples of getting around that Paul Mitchell systems does not experiment on animals and they are selling in China. And also there's a big effort to talk to the Chinese government to show that this is not helpful. And additionally, they need to continue developing non animal testing methods. So we're going to talk a little bit more about non animal testing methods on the other side. We're taking a break here on voice America influencers, but we're going to come back uh, and we're going to stay live on Facebook. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. There's a new force to be reckoned with in talk radio. It's not just talk radio. Hosted by LaTanya Jr. and co-host Tina Wynn and Tony Brown. Not Just Talk Radio is like a superhero. Inspiring, problem-solving, and informing. Packed with action-provoking conversations from news, movements, and social and politics issues. This program is about a wide range of voices and fresh points of view from experts, celebrities, and you, the listener. Not Just Talk Talk Radio is broadcast live Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers for entertaining and thought-provoking weekly discussions with some of the top stars in their fields. From business, sports, and science to entertainment, music, and literature, Tony's guests share their success and give their wisdom. If you're looking to manifest your vision and see how others have done so, be sure to listen to the Tony D'Urso Show every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers channel. Do you believe that being fit is difficult? Do you think it requires turning in your favorite comfort foods for boring chicken and broccoli and spending hours in a gym? It doesn't. Tune into Have It All with Devin Alexander. 
Devin and her guest experts will show you how you can have it all at any age, from relationships to money to thinking bigger than you've ever imagined. Devin will fast-track your goals to yummy reality. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. We don't follow. We lead. Join us. The Voice America Influencers Channel. You are listening to Jane Unchained. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email in to janeunchainednews at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with our mascot, Little Rico, on Jane Unchained, Voice America Influencers Channel with Mike Ryan of the New England Anti-Vivisection Society that has been around for a very long time. Mike, uh, tell us what your primary campaigns are right now uh, as the New England Vivisection, Anti-Vivisection Society gets into high gear. Thanks. Yeah, the, um, you know, as you said, we've been around since 1895, so we've, we've got a pretty good head start here in trying to tackle the problem of animal suffering and medical experiments. Uh, for, 29, for, for this year, uh, a big focus of ours has been trying to get these cats that are suffering in medical experiments in, uh, uh, in Maryland here, get the USDA to give us those cats. Uh, there's good news on that front, which is that the state of Maryland uh, passed a law uh, last uh, this year, in April, it was signed into law by Governor Hogan. October 1st, it took effect. And it says, any experiments that are using cats and dogs, the experimenters have to make a good faith effort to adopt out those animals at the end of the experiments. And because there's no federal law that conflicts with that about adoption after an experiment is over, there's no reason that that law would not also apply to federal, uh, any federal work being done in the state of Maryland. We've raised this point in the last few weeks uh, to the USDA to tell them that they actually have a legal obligation if they're going to be doing business in the state of Maryland to give up those cats. We know they're perfectly healthy. We, the New England Anti-Vivisection Society, are happy to pay any costs associated with these animals. We'll pay for the medical care that they need uh, if, if they need them. A lot of them are just there for breeding and they were never given any, uh, they were never made, given this food poisoning to begin with. But again, all we're talking about is a little bit of food poisoning here. The cats are fine. Our goal is to get these cats and work with our network of rescue and shelters to adopt them out. Um, so we feel good about that, and we're particularly pleased that the U.S. Congress has, in, has indicated to USDA in this bill that I was referencing earlier, uh, saying, yes, look at adopting out these cats. So we think we're going to end this year with a real win here, and that it will set a great precedent for in any of the states where these laws have passed regarding uh, cats and dogs, uh, that any federal research being done in those states, that those agencies will have to accommodate uh, the state law in that case. So we're hopeful that we broke some new ground there. For and next year, it's primates. Yeah, well, um, I work with Eagle Freedom Project, now Rescue and Freedom Project, that uh, rescues dogs from laboratories. And I uh, just did a whole cooking segment with a, with a wonderful guy who rescued a beagle. And... Uh, these are such gentle animals. They pick the gentlest dog to torture quite often because it makes it easy for them to torture. Um, now, Vanessa Shakib, um, who is another animal rights attorney who is absolutely extraordinary, says, Mike, what are conditions like for primates in labs? They're, it's a great question, Vanessa. They're dismal. 
Um, most primates in labs are uh, in a windowless basement, uh, often in isolation. Um, and you can imagine how that would be. It's essentially solitary confinement. Uh, these primates suffer in the same way that we do. And years of cruel experiments have, have uh, confirmed that. Uh, we know that they suffer the same way. And so this treatment of being housed uh, in a windowless basement room, mostly to evade any sort of transparencies so that no one can really see what's going on. Um, these are these are just awful conditions. One of one of the uh, goals of our work is to try and establish something like a right to light. We're saying, if uh, you know, the Geneva Convention stipulates that prisoners ought to be able to have access to outside uh, natural sunlight uh, in an outdoor environment for a little bit every day. We would like to see just as a bare minimum standard that, of course, we want primate experiments ended full stop, but uh, just even giving them some access to light uh, would be an, a massive improvement over the way that they're currently housed, hidden away in these windowless cement and iron cages. Uh, it's, it's absolutely horrific and cruel conditions. And the documents, thanks to FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, uh, the documents that we're able to see about how these animals are treated and the reports of when things go wrong, uh, they're just heartbreaking. Uh, there, there's the, uh, the Animal Welfare Act, while well-intentioned, it simply does not provide the level of protection that these animals deserve. I mean, the whole thing is just so horrific. Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out what the answer is, and I know there's no one answer. Uh, one of the things that, gave me hope that you were talking about is that some of the scientists themselves are saying, we don't want to do this anymore. We've all done, I think, things in the past that we suddenly wake up and go, oh, not good. And it requires a shift in consciousness. Uh, for years, I was involved in uh, covering crime. And uh, that was my job. I was a reporter and I was in local news and in syndicated news and pretty much crime was what I was assigned to. So I didn't think I had really a choice. And then I was working with Dr. I am working with Dr. Selesh Rao, who was trying to create a vegan world by 2026 for environmental reasons, among others. And he said, we have to create a culture of normalized nonviolence. Right now, we live in a culture of normalized violence. And suddenly a light bulb went off in my head and I said, oh my God, I am part of the problem. I may be a vegan, I may not have any leather or animal products in my home, but I've contributed to the culture of normalized violence. Ultimately violence is a form of entertainment and I just stopped doing it. If you see me on any TV shows, those are old videos. After I had the conversation with him, I made a with myself I wasn't going to do it anymore so it took a light bulb moment what is the light bulb moment going to be for the animal experimenters how do we get them to the light bulb moment place Mike well my hope is uh, a lot of it's pegged honestly on John Gluck who I uh, referenced earlier in the sense that he's such a compelling person to me he was at the top of his field he was a, a leading primate uh, experimenter um, best in class, and he had this change of conscience, this realization, kind of like what you're describing. Uh, and, he, and the book that he wrote, um, we're making an effort to try and get that in the hands of uh, 
students and those that might be future experimenters to warn them that they may share the same regrets that uh, Professor Gluck shares about his, uh, the past work that he did. So I think uh, the bravery that, that he demonstrated by stepping forward, because that couldn't have been easy, uh, to say the work that I was involved in, I feel very conflicted about it now, and now he's working with us to try and end it. To me, that's the, that's the key moment, is when you can get uh, Professor Gluck's message to future science students. Uh, so we're working on that um, with a few other groups too, to try and get that message directly to the next generation of scientists, um, and also to the current generation, to tell them if you feel uncomfortable with what you're doing, one, you have the right to blow the whistle, uh, at any time, and you should know that. Um, and we'd love to work with whistleblowers if they'd like to get in touch with us. Uh, well, if if but, I could make a suggestion, mm -hmm. uh, probably science students are the most likely to read, but I find there's a lot of trees being killed for books that people aren't reading. And I've written four books. I'm not saying we shouldn't write books, but I think that the message uh, that people get these days is from videos. I mean, Gary Yarofsky single-handedly turned uh, millions of people in Israel vegan with a speech. Uh, I know that these speeches are very powerful. Have you thought of having this gentleman, this scientist, go to schools and do this talk and, and promote him in a video format where people can share the video and they can turn it into to small videos and slice it up and, and send it out, you know, as on Instagram, which is a video is a one minute max and Instagram TV for 10 minutes and Facebook and YouTube and really saturate uh, and target scientific institutions and cultures of higher learning. Um, we've got a caller from Florida. Shannon, your question or thought? You're actually talking about exactly what I was calling about right now when you said earlier, what can the consumers do? And then you were asking, what's the solution? And that's what I was thinking is, I think most consumers, even though they're very against it, don't realize that it is happening and that it's not only, uh, obviously we know all animals are the same and deserve the same protection, but it's the animals that they have at home and love, and I don't think that people know about it. So exactly what you're saying was what I was calling about, how to get the word out and get this message to more people. And I think these videos are the way to go because you go in a classroom, you might be able to reach 30 to 150 people maybe, but with a video, you can reach millions. Um, and we have another caller, Simone from Los Angeles. Your question or thoughts, Simone? Hi, I just had a question because we constantly hear that researchers will use alternative methods for cosmetic testing and also just for medical research and things like that when they're available. Who is actually determining this? Who determines what is acceptable so that we know for sure that they're using them? Are they, is that an opinion? They decide that they're going to use an alternative or is that something that is actually governed by another body that says, this is a good alternative and you have to use this? Great question, Simone. I mean, I think what Simone's talking about is enforcement. Who's, who's watching the store, as it were? Right, and that's, where, that's a disappointing story to tell because although there is a mandate that experimenters consider alternatives and they do report to what's called an IACUC, uh, it's an acronym, uh, essentially a committee that's designed to give some oversight into the process here to ensure that 
the animals are at least treated to that bare minimum standard of the Animal Welfare Act and that there is some cursory exploration of alternatives. It's an enormously thin, disappointing process in the sense that the experimenter can check a box saying, I looked at all the alternatives, now I'm going to go use animals. Uh, That's one thing that we need to fix because there is, in theory, a procedure for them to uh, have to consider all these alternatives. But it's right now, it's simply up to the experimenter to decide for him or herself how much time to devote to sorting through the various options that there may be. And if the experimenter simply wants to go to the animal model, because ultimately it will be more profitable for the institution to have to absorb the cost of housing the animals, it's easier to get year two and year three funding, there's an incentive to go with animals. And there's no one, uh, there's no governing body to say, uh, wait a second, what you're saying you want to use animals for, there is an alternative you could use, and I'm going to make you use that. That doesn't exist right now. Well, I would say that would be number one on the list because, you know, we have a lot of what I would call uh, false victories, like, oh, it's a victory on paper, but then there's no enforcement. Uh, You know, we saw that a little bit with Prop 2. uh, And uh, Prop 2 was this big thing in 2008 that was going to be so great for the animals. And then undercover investigations show, oh, (laughs) not so much. So I think enforcement's really, really important. Um, I also think, though, that having a campaign, making this, what I find makes people change is when the culture changes and it becomes really uncool. Um, it's, it's sad to say, but that's really what motivates people to a large degree. Uh, and uh, the scientists realize that they are outliers and they, they are being shamed. I don't think that necessarily being shamed. I think it's a combination. Uh, You know, we march. I've covered protests at UCLA every year and uh, Progress for Science marches with like 100 people through UCLA campus. And I look at the faces of the students and I try to see, is this this getting through to them? I think that it certainly doesn't hurt, but I think that if they were hit with videos that are highly produced featuring an actual scientist who has decided this is not good, it's not good for science, it's not good for the animals, and here's why. Of all the things you've said, obviously you try to change the laws, obviously you fight the Freedom of Information Act uh, requests, you file those, you try to get the legislation passed, but I would say that a campaign that features this person you're talking about, not just a book, but a social media campaign that basically says, you know, I was wrong. I need to let you know that you're going down the wrong path and here's why. And speak to it in scientific terms because the first thing scientists will say to you is, well, you're not a scientist. You don't know. You don't know. It's way over your head, young lady. Uh, Why are you uh, suggesting that you know better than I what's good for experimentation? But as scientists is speaking their language and and I think that of all the things I've heard today that that's the most exciting for me I mean aside from all the the work the important work you're doing but yeah you've got somebody to step out and say this is wrong and and that's how change occurs you know I'm a recovering alcoholic with 23 years of sobriety I couldn't get sober on my own but when I had a group of sober people who I could share my experiences with and not feel alone, then 
that's the miracle of being able to stay sober. So it's the same exact psychological uh, process. Uh, I think that uh, that you're onto something, and and this man is a, a, a gem, a gold mine, as it were, for your movement and our movement. A hey, page from California. Your question or thought, Paige? Uh, yes. Um, uh, well, just the same way, along the same lines of what, what you're speaking about, I was thinking about this new program called the Ranchers Advocacy Program, which basically holds the hand with ranchers mm-hmm. who are changing over to a different, to an alternative rather than ranching animals and farm animals. I was thinking perhaps there could be an advocacy program slash, you know, um, support to, cause I'm thinking, what are these alternatives and do the doctors, are they aware? Maybe it's the financial uh, overwhelm of how are we going to do this? And so they just check that box and move on. So perhaps that's such a great point. Or the supporting of, there needs to be some kind of support there, network to show them the way. Yeah? Oh, that, that is such a great point. Um, and, and Paige, you know, you raise a point of, yes, there are ranchers now, people who have been raising chickens and cattle, and they've had the light bulb moment. They say, I don't want to do it anymore. And so there's a program that helps them transition. It's run by other ranchers who've stopped sending animals to slaughter and said they don't want to do it anymore. And it's a support group. They don't feel alone. And they also bring in experts to show them, hey, there's a big commonality between chicken farming and mushroom farming. You can switch from chicken farming to mushroom farming. Here's how you do it. We're going to help you. And also they document it and turn it into mini docs and uh, videos that are all over the internet so that people uh, can see that, oh, I could do that too. And then they target farmers. I mean, we've been involved in that. We did that just this past week. We raised, uh, along with the Rowdy Girl Sanctuary, uh, the Rowdy Girl Sanctuary raised, with our help, $15,000 for uh, a calf-cow operation that stopped killing their cattle and needed hay. They needed to feed their animals hay. So on the other side of the break, we've done a lot of talking. We're going to let Mike Ryan weigh in on all of this. We'll be back. We're staying live on Facebook. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Sustainable success is just around the corner. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, tune into Sustainable Success with host Chris Salem. Did you know that the path to success is a long path that started many years ago? The path you started on then determines what is happening now. Chris and his amazing guests in their field will help you navigate the path to sustainable success every Thursday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Financial freedom and money are subjects that many people are uncomfortable discussing. These don't have to be. Listen for Money, Mindset, and Love with Thomas DeShooter. We're all about sharing ideas with tips, amazing guests, and input from you, the listeners. It's time to dream big and help each other reach our goals. Not only will you get closer to financial freedom, but you'll learn more about spirituality, work-life balance, and empowerment. Listen live Thursdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Influencers. 
It's time to unlock some of the best kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are listening to Jane Unchained. To reach the show today, call in to 1 866 472 5795. That's 1 866 472 5795. You may also send an email in to News at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Welcome. We're here with the amazing Mike Ryan of Knees. The New England Anti-Vivisection Society has been around for many, many, many years and centuries even. And we're talking about using high-tech modern methods to stop this barbaric medieval practice of animal experimentation that unfortunately is still going strong. Lisa from California, your question or thought, Lisa? Yes. Um, hi, hi, Jane. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I think that we need to collaborate more with institutions and organizations who are, in fact, taking steps to reduce and re- uh, replace animal testing with other types of, of methods. So, for example, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine recently published the um, abolition of using animals for pediatric testing and what they're doing in pediatrics training. So residents, pediatric residents will go through learning certain kinds of procedures on pigs. And now there is a universal adaptation of simulators. And I read from their, their, their latest article in the Physicians Committee magazine that says, the simulation center will now be our sole focus of skills training for residents physicians to learn the skills necessary to stabilize critically ill neonates. Uh, the success continued in 2012 as the East, East Carolina University, Vanderbilt University, the University of Oklahoma, the University of Texas at, at Houston, and the Uni- University of Washington all ended animal use. So Great point, Lisa, and I want to just summarize to give Mike a chance to discuss that. That's really good information. Mike, I guess what she's saying, and I, I think you probably know Dr. Neil Barnard very well, oh, you yeah. know, it started when Dr. Neil Barnard said, I'm not going to kill a dog or whatever animal was in front of him in med- medical school. And then the person next to him said, if, if you won't do it, I won't do it either. Um I really do feel it almost has to be a grassroots movement where these young scientists stand up and say, hell no. And they need to have almost like a hashtag. Uh, they, they need to, to throw off the shackles and say, basically call BS on this because it's the younger generation that calls BS on what the old folks are doing. Let's face it. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a great point uh, from your caller. And, uh, I uh, love PCRM and Neil Barnard's, uh, he, he does great work uh, and uh, absolutely for uh, their product in this space, it's fantastic, no question. Um, I agree, we're hoping to build that universe. Uh, we don't know that we have that tagline yet uh, that you're referencing, Jane, uh, but we think that there is, we think there's a lot of scientists that wanna come out 
uh, in support. They just don't know how to. Um, they're waiting for that moment. But if we can grow that audience, and I think starting with the newest generation, starting even in the, uh, in the dissection space, I mean, when you can get the message early to children that dissection uh, isn't something you should ever feel comfortable with, uh, it is not naturally a part of any sort of sophisticated scientific endeavor, uh, this is just uh, cruelty that you're being indoctrinated into. Uh, I think that process can really start. So to the, for all the organizations, including Neves, uh, but there are others as well, that are working to try and end classroom dissection, to me, that's a real part of this because you can get to them way before they're already in college and they're considering doing experiments on other species. You can get to them uh, much earlier when they're in sixth or seventh grade uh, trying to, uh, you know, dissect a frog, for example. Um, that's a great opportunity there. And, and um, yeah, I, I agree. Hey, with I, everybody who has a idea for the hashtag, I just thought of no kill scientists like uh, wearing a button that says, no kill, I'm a no-kill scientist. Uh, Monica from California, your question or thought? Hey, I'm wondering why would NIH end chimpanzee experiments but not end experiments on other primates? Great question. Yeah, that's a real puzzler for us because when uh, Francis Collins, who's the head of the National Institutes of Health, said uh, that chimpanzee research would be ended, and that was because Congress essentially told NIH to end it. Um, he, Francis Collins used interesting language. He said it was, quote, the right thing to do to end the chimpanzee experiments, the right thing to do. But after that, uh, since 2015, when that decision was finalized and there would be no more experiments on the remaining chimps they had, since 2015, the number of primates that are suffering in medical experiments has risen by 22% to an all-time oh high. Oh my the pain God. and the capacity for pain and suffering between various species of primates doesn't vary. Uh, their sensitivity, their capacity for distress, all of it is the same. It's identical to ours. So how NIH can see themselves as reasonable saying it's the right thing to do to not torture chimpanzees, but it's still okay to torture uh, all of these, you know, 76,000 other primates and window locked in windowless underground bunkers throughout the country how they're okay with that is a mystery to us. Uh, our hope is that Congress will step in and help them see the inconsistency and put them on a path to phasing out all primate experiments. Uh, Carol, Carol Mack likes the no-kill scientist idea. We should even have a contest to find out who's going to come up with the best slogan, the best hashtag, uh, and uh, try to keep that, even the, even the contest would generate publicity for um, the idea that, you know, the whole basis of medicine is first do no harm. So this is all first do harm. First do harm. Do a lot of killing and then try to justify it. It's so meat. It, the word medieval keeps coming back over and over again. I mean, one day we are going to have a museum for, just like we have in Europe, medieval torture museums. We're going to have a museum for medieval torture of animals. Um, I, I do feel that we kind of almost lost with, when the chimpanzee thing happened, a lot of people kind of thought to themselves, oh great, that problem solved, and kind of extrapolated that because they weren't torturing chimpanzees anymore, that maybe all the other animals in a, in a burst of wishful thinking were better off. But you're saying it's the opposite. 
Right. The, um, so while there are some, it's a mixed bag of victories and setbacks uh, in animal experimentation generally in this country. Uh, the victories include things like the baby monkey experiments are ended. Chimpanzee experiments won't take place anymore. You have things at the state level, like in Virginia, the worst kind of, of uh, vivisection or animal experiments called column E, which is where you put an animal in some uh, indefinite pain and then offer nothing to relieve that pain for whatever reason. Maybe you, the experimenter thinks that we contradict the data. That's now illegal. You can't do that with taxpayer dollars in the state of Virginia. That's, a, that's huge. Uh, the fact that Congress has asked NIH uh, recently, the last couple of years, do an assessment of overall ethically, what are you doing with these primates? And forcing NIH to account for that uh, is great. That overall cats and dog experiments, those numbers, um, if you look at the last 20 years, those numbers are on the decline, thanks to pressure from a whole lot of groups, uh, including PETA and others. Um, those numbers are down. But if you look at primates specifically, it's climbing. And it's simply a lack of uh, accountability. NIH has repeatedly assured Congress that they're working to accommodate the three R's, you know, reduce, refine, and replace. Reduce the number of animals that you're using, refine the tests so that they're less cruel, and replace animals with alternative methods. Congress wrote that principle of the three R's into the Animal Welfare Act. And uh, that's supposed to be accommodated by any entities that are using animals. But you can see from the raw data that we looked at, and we ended up breaking news in Science Magazine over it, that despite this mandate of reduction and despite the NIH telling Congress that they are always working to reduce primates. They're quick to reassure that, oh, we're working to get these numbers down. They just hit an all-time high. It's, it's hard to understand, and it is disappointing. Um, isn't, but it true, isn't it true that the head of the NIH is an animal experimenter himself? He is. Uh, he, yeah, he was. Now, when he was, uh, before he was in this position, uh, Francis Collins had articulated um, much earlier in his career a lot of concern with animal tests. Uh, he was, uh, interestingly, somewhat consistent with the previous director of the NIH, uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Zerponi, who said, we drank the Kool-Aid, was his quote, with regard to the uh, animal testing model and how worthwhile it was. I mean, think of that. The head of the National Institutes of Health, the biggest funder of all animal experiments uh, in this country, and maybe the world, uh, said on one of his last days in the position as NIH, we drank the Kool-Aid, saying this model is simply incoherent and we continue to throw money after this. So that's not our words, that was his. Under pressure, he later had to walk that back a little bit. Maybe, I don't know his motivation for doing so, I have my own theory. Uh, but I think he was, uh, when he was most candid, he was probably uh, most truthful in expressing a deep skepticism about the animal model generally. Let me say that our institutions of government are corrupt, if not legally, morally. Uh, industry runs most of these uh, agencies. They infiltrate them. Either people get big jobs in the industry when they leave or they're formally with the industry. We see with the U USDA, we see with the Interior Department. Um, so they get pressure from companies and there's been scandals uh, surrounding corporate influence on uh, so-called scientific uh, conclusions. How are we going to get to Congress? We only have three more minutes because I do believe that things will change. I mean, it's so hard. Look at, look at gun control. I mean, you know, you have mass shootings every couple of days and still 
uh, it seems like this organization, the NRA, which now is under suspicion for its possible ties to Russia, uh, still manages to control Congress. You know, uh, how, how are we going to, to get politicians to wake up? Uh, what, what is it going to take? When are we going to have a Me Too movement for monkeys? Yeah, it's a good question. There are some encouraging signs uh, coming from the U.S. Congress on the issue of primate experiments. Uh, Almost uh, every time there's been language condemning primate experimentation, either in whole or in part, you've had a majority of members of Congress uh, expressing that concern. Um, It's very difficult to find a member of Congress that wants to go to the floor or the House House or the Senate and defend uh, what's going on to these animals. And I think because public opinion is already at 70% of people oppose this, uh, that the opportunity that you might be identifying where someone could try and have you know, influence with Congress in that sense, I don't think it would work. I think members of Congress are acutely aware of public opinion on this. To that extent, I'd recommend everyone continue to write your member of Congress, uh, or when you see your member of Congress around town, if you ever do, uh, just check in and say, um, I'm one of the things that concerns me is that my tax dollars are funding primate experiments, uh, which I, which I simply object to. And I think that the more that message is repeated, the more members of Congress will continue to, in a majority, oppose this. I agree um, that we live in a world with so many people and so many causes that it, it almost takes, sure, of course I would do that. And thank you, my Congressman Ted Liu is... Uh, one of the best when it comes to animals, thank God. But sure I think it takes a major campaign. I mean, I, I think, you know, what I've learned from the Me Too movement is that it really requires almost like everybody just jumping up and saying, you know, this will not stand. And, um, you know, a lot of times that happens when there's a horrific uh, video or there's a horrific public awareness of, oh, my God. That's why those baby monkey experiment videos were so powerful. Mike, I want to thank you. Please support the New England Anti-Vivisection Society, which is neavs.org. We will put it up, and we've been putting it up on the comment section. We'll put it up in the intro. Uh, Everybody needs to speak for these poor animals. We need to let Air France know that it's unacceptable. I will not fly Air France. from now on. I don't care if they have the cheapest fare on the planet. Sorry, Air France. I think we need a campaign targeted at Air France. I know that there have been those campaigns, but I think if every animal organization got together and targeted Air France uh, and just said, you know, Merd, no, we're not going to do this. I think that that might be a, because we have to shut off the funnel and Air France is the one bringing them in. And uh, we have to fight it in communities like Hendry County, Florida, which sadly has laboratory monkey breeding facilities. Even though they got shut down in Puerto Rico, uh, oh, Hendry County said, come on down. Uh, Unbelievable. Uh, I just think that the work you're doing is so absolutely crucial. I, I believe we have to get to a tipping point and get to it soon. And anything that we can do to update on your incredible work Mike Ryan, thank you. I know you're a very busy man. Thank you for taking the time today uh, to speak to our followers and to all the people watching. And anything we can do to support you, I sometimes can't sleep at night thinking about these animals in the labs. 
It breaks my heart. It's so wrong on every level, not helping humans, hurting humans, wasting tax dollars, terrible cruelty, all for what? When there are alternative tests now in the 21st century that are more accurate. All right, we got to leave it there. Thank you, Mike Ryan. Thank you very much. Talk soon. All right, bye. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.